Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to Catholics with Bibles. I'm your host, Chase Krauss, and didn't have a podcast last week, so not sure if you saw that. I'm sure you might have noticed. Uh, but the reason is because I live in Austin, Texas. And for those that aren't aware, Texas was covered in like ice and snow and awfulness all last week. Um, so just like a brief re- recap for anybody who doesn't get American news or Texas news. Um, yeah, so it was like, I guess last Friday night, Saturday-ish, um, we got hit with kind of the first wave of cold, icy, roadness, awfulness. Um, but it wasn't like too, too bad. And then Saturday night, another wave came through and it was to, to, so bad that I, I literally couldn't leave my neighborhood. I was trying to go to, to church to live stream, um, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't physically leave my neighborhood. Um, and then it just kind of kept coming over and over and over again to a point where um, tons of people in Texas lost power, tons of people lost water water pipes breaking, electricity going down, so pumps not working. Um, praise God, we never lost power. There's a lot of people that do lost, uh, lose power and they're really cold in their house and it was not not safe at all. Um, but I, you know, we're very fortunate we didn't lose power. We did lose water from like Tuesday through Friday night, Saturday-ish, but then the water came back on. There's some people whose water is just coming back on like today. Um, and it was wild. It was just really, really crazy. Um, it's something you don't see coming. Um, it's just a freak nature winter storm situation. Um, no one really to blame, uh, but nature, right? Maybe global warming. I don't know. Don't know if I believe in that. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. You'll never know. But anyway, um, <laughs> uh, it, it's past now. Praise God. We're back in the office. It's sunny and like 79 degrees today because that's how Texas is supposed to be in February. It's supposed to be 79 degrees in the 70s. That's what I like. Uh, But anyway, uh, today we'll be continuing on in our Bible study and our study of man and woman, he created them, theology of the body. Before we get into that, I want to get into the Greek word of the, sorry, not Greek, Hebrew word of the day. Hebrew word of the day is bara. Bara is the Hebrew word for creation. I'll, I'll say why that's important in a little bit. Um, but, you know, brief recap of what we've done so far. We've done, you know, original solitude and original unity. Uh, and JP2, like if you actually read Man and Woman, he created them. His whole first section is really an examination of the first four experiences, he calls them. The first four experiences of man namely original solitude, original unity, original nakedness, and original sin slash original innocence. Um, he, he does spend a decent amount of time on, on the innocence part, not so much the sin part, um, but for the sake of this and brevity, we're going to combine original sin and original innocence because they kind of go hand in hand. Um, so today we're going to look at the very last verse of Genesis 2, and then we're going to go ahead and dive into Genesis 3. But we're not going to super study Genesis 3. We're going to read it in light of original sin, right? And, and what happens with that. Um, but anyway, the four experiences, right? You've been following along. You, we've talked about original solitude, original unity. So today we're going to talk about original nakedness and original sin slash original innocence. Those are kind of like one experience in and of themselves. Um, so 
where we begin. We, like I said, begin with the very first, or the, sorry, the very last verse of chapter two. And we read, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not shamed. So they were naked and they were not ashamed. Uh, this is a verse that I think makes a lot of people super uncomfortable nowadays um, because uh, we don't like being naked around other people. Like generally speaking, maybe you live in like a nudist colony or something like that. Maybe you do, uh, but the vast majority of us don't live in nudist colonies and we don't like being naked around other people. Um, but for the author of Genesis, right after creation, right after Adam sees his wife and says, you are Isha, you are a woman because out of man you were brought. Uh, he, they were both, they both saw each other exactly for who they are and, the, and they were not ashamed. Uh, I want to begin with kind of this uh, quote from, you know, man will be created them. Like last time we're into the point where, you know, quoting St. John Paul II, it's, it's just too good not to. And there's so much that I'm not quoting. There's so much I want to quote, uh, but I'm being picky and choosy here. Uh, so anyway, he gonna, he's going to briefly explain kind of what this, this lack of shame signifies. So we read this from JP2. The words, they did not feel shame, can only signify, in an indirect sense, an original depth in affirming what is inherent in the person. That is, what is visibly feminine and masculine, through which the personal intimacy of reciprocal communication is constituted in all its radical simplicity and purity. To this fullness of exterior perception, expressed by physical nakedness, corresponds the interior fullness of the vision of man and God. That is, according to the measure of the image of God, according to this measure, man is truly naked, even before becoming aware of it. Okay, so what does that mean? So th this idea of, this is before the fall, right? This is the end of chapter two. They were just created. And remember Genesis 1 says, defines man as being made in the image and likeness of God. The image of God, who they created them, male and female, they created them. Genesis 2 defines man as a creature ordered towards relationship, right? Ordered towards relationship, namely relationship with God and that original solitude with God. But then also when Adam discovers his wife Eve and then comes to know even more about who he is, who is what's his identity. And so this moment where Adam and Eve view each other totally naked, where they view each other and say, finally, my body makes sense. Finally, I make sense. Finally, your body makes sense. You make sense. Because together we see that we're meant for each other. We're, we're meant for this original unity. And so for JP2, he says, this moment where they see each other totally naked, yet, because this is before the fall, they also see the person within the body. Not within the body, it's, it's not platonic. You are your body. They, they see the other person, right? They see totally in the image of God, this other person, and they this reciprocal gift, this giving and receiving of the other person, right? So there's no shame. Before the fall, there's no shame. Why? Because this is before the fall, so they don't see the body as something to be attained and something to be used for pleasure. Rather, in viewing the body, they view the other person, Right, this communion of persons that we briefly talked about a few times, this communion of person. Um, and they re recognize that they're made for this mutual gift. 
It's mutual giving of each other. This original nakedness where there's no shame, there's no guilt, there's no fear. And the, the one thing I want, I'll say about shame is something that JP2 talks about and other people commenting on JP2 talks about. You know, there, there's a couple different types of shame. There's like moral shame and then let's call it, um, you know, sexual shame. Uh, so, uh, or uh, naked shame, if another way you could say it, I guess. Uh, so moral shame is the shame that you feel when you do something wrong, right? Um, and that's like, say, you know, when you see your toddler or kid or whatever, you know, push their little brother um, or sister or like do something and then they, they're they ashamed, right? They feel ashamed that they did something wrong. Uh, hopefully that shame leads to repentance, leads to going to the parent and say, I did this. I'm so sorry. Um, but it's a shame you feel when you do something wrong. Now, there's also the sexual shame or the shame of nakedness, right? And these, these two are interlinked, right? But there are two, they're, they're, they should be distinguished. Uh, naked shame is the shame that you feel when you're naked and it leads to like covering yourself up, right? Um, and that shame actually can be viewed as kind of a good thing because you are uh, protecting what you know is only meant for one other, right? Um, so... Those are kind of two sides of the word shame. There's there's the moral shame, then there's the sexual or naked shame. And don't get me wrong, like you can feel ashamed at committing adultery, right? Which these two would be kind of linked towards. Um, and so this idea of them not being ashamed, though, it's because they they see each other for who they're meant to be. You know, for any married couples out there, um, hopefully you you're not ashamed to be naked in front of your your spouse. Why? Because if you didn't lie at your mar- at your wedding vows and you totally gave of each other spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically, right? You know that they, they accept you exactly the way you are. You know there shouldn't be any shame between married couples uh, because they're they're united in in the marital acts, right? Um, and so it doesn't mean like you know. Don't walk around naked in front of your kids and stuff like that. It's kind of weird. Um, but, but at the same time, for married couples, uh, the reason that shame has been removed, hopefully, is because you know without a shadow of a doubt that you are theirs and they are yours. You have given yourself to them. They have fully given themselves to you. And there's no need for shame. There's no need for fear because you've opened yourself and you've given yourself totally and fully over to them. But this is why like you like having sex outside of marriage is just so far from true love and true gift because you can't fully give yourself over to the other person outside of the marital relationship because you're what what is what does that marital union say physically it says physically that I'm totally giving myself over to you and you are physically representing what you've vowed to and sworn to spiritually mentally emotionally right and so if you have sex outside of marriage, you are lying with your body. With everything you are, you are lying to that other person. And you're saying, I, I just want to feel good, right? I just I just want pleasure, right? Um, so JP2 then kind of transitions into this uh, spousal meaning of the body. Uh, what, what does he mean by that? So this 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 spousal meaning, he actually, he actually backtracks a little bit here. Um, and he goes back to Genesis 1. Why? Because... JP2 is really going to start bringing in at this section of man will be created then this idea of the hermeneutic of gift, right? And that we've talked about before that man only finds himself in and through a sincere gift of self. And so he has to set the stage and remind his readers and the, his listeners 
that everything is a gift. And we see this even in Genesis 1. So if we go to Genesis 1, that goes to that, word, that Hebrew word bara. So that bara, uh, it said three times in Genesis 1. So Genesis uh, verse 1, 21, and 27. Verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created, right? And then in 27, we see it again. So God created man and woman in his image. Um, and sorry, verse 21, I skipped. Uh, verse 21, we read, so God created the great sea monsters and every living creature. And then verse 27 says created male and female. Why is this significant? This is the only three times in Genesis one that that word is actually used bara for created. Well, in Hebrew, um, there is no word for like big, bigger, biggest, right? Uh, in English we have, oh, he's big, but he's bigger. Um, in Hebrew that, that distinction isn't there. It's a really old language. And so for example, uh, there's no distinction between like a ditch and a Grand Canyon. So what you would say is you would say, oh, that's a ditch. Cool. It's a ditch. And then if you see like the Grand Canyon, you would say, oh, that's a ditch ditch. So you'd say the word twice. Um, and very rarely, if ever, was you never say it three times because three times replied infinite. So you would say you, there is no inf uh, <laughs> there's no infinite ditch, 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 because there is a bottom. But you would say there is a holy, holy, holy God, a thrice holy God, namely an infinitely holy God that is so holy that it's uncomprehensible. But here, Barah is used three times. What does that tell us? Well, God created everything and that's good. That's really good. He created animals. That's awesome. That's, that's good. That's, that's, he created it. That's twice good. But when he created man in his image and likeness, that is a good of infinite worth. That's what Genesis 1 is telling us by using that word very selectively three times. It's a good of infinite worth that you and I are infinitely good only because we're defined by our relationship with God. So our goodness is basically dependent on God's goodness, right? But we've been made in the image of God. Our, by very definition, we are infinitely good and we have infinite value in and of ourselves, not because of what you do or say or how much money you have or where you live, but in the fact that you exist and you were made in the image of God, you are infinitely good. And so JP2, he points this out for this spousal meaning of the body, namely going back to original nakedness, right? That Adam sees his wife Eve, Eve sees Adam, and they fully see each other as a gift because before the fall, they recognize that all is gift and that they, they, they are defined by their relationship with God and by their relationship with each other, this reciprocal gift to the other defines who they very are. So creation is, is a gift only because, and this is JP2, creation is a gift only because man is in it. Because man is the only thing in this created universe that can recognize something as a gift. Your dog doesn't take a treat from you and be like, wow, my master's so amazing. That was a gift that like, I totally didn't deserve, blah, 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 blah. No, they're eating the treat because it tastes good, right? Uh, they don't have the intellectual capacity to comprehend how much of a gift their existence is and the fact that you gave them a treat is, for example. Um, so the next quote I want to read is, is about this, this idea of the spousal meaning of the body. Um, and then there's another quote I want to read about uh, this, this gift. So this one reads, Man, whom God created male and female, bears the divine image impressed in the body from the beginning. Man and woman constitute, so to speak, two diverse ways of being a body that are proper to human nature in the unity of this image. He goes on to say, we should now turn anew to the, those fundamental words that Christ used, that is, 
to the word created. Remember, he's talking, he's, this is all in reference to Christ's appeal to the beginning and to the subject creator, introducing into the considerations carried out so far a new dimension, a new criterion of understanding and of interpretation that we will call hermeneutic of gift. Didn't make this word up. He made it up. The dimension of gift is decisive for the essential truth and depth of the meaning of original solitude, unity, nakedness. It stands also at the very heart of the mystery of creation, which allows us to build the theology of the body from the beginning, but at the same time demands that we build it in precisely this way. Remember what's this hermeneutic of gift, namely that man finds himself in and through the sincere gift of spells, of self, Gaudi met spes. Um, so it's a Vatican II document. And that's an ecumenical document, which means it is uh, infallible because it's guided by the Holy Spirit. You should read it. It's good stuff. Um, so then going on to this, this hermeneutic gift, spousal meaning of the body. Um, this other quote is just, it's just so good, y'all. It's just so good. I wish I could just read the whole thing on this podcast, but I can't. Um, okay. So once again, going into this spousal meaning of the body, this gift of Adam and Eve, masculine and femininity, uh, we read this. The body, which expresses femininity for masculinity and vice versa, masculinity for femininity, manifests the reciprocity and the communion of person. It expresses it through gift as the fundamental characteristic of personal existence. This is the body. Listen to this. This is the body, a witness to creation as a fundamental gift, and therefore a witness to love as the source from which this same giving springs. Masculinity, femininity, namely sex, is the original sign of a creative donation, and at the same time, the sign of a gift that man, male and female, becomes aware of as a gift lived, so to speak, in an original way. This is the meaning with which sex enters into the theology of the body. Um, so uh, it's just... Ah, it's just so beautiful. Um, anyway, so basically, once again, our body is a symbol, male and female, together. It's not supposed to be seen in isolation. Males aren't supposed to be seen in isolation. Females aren't supposed to be seen in isolation. We're supposed to be seen together because it's only together that we make sense, that we find ourselves in and through a sincere gift of self. Um, so briefly, I want to read uh, Genesis uh, 3. Um, namely because it's, it's really important because I want, I want to not spend too much time in this first section of theology of the body. Probably next week will be our last section kind of wrapping up. So we're talking about you know, covering a lot of stuff and like a very little amount of time, but I want to briefly read Genesis three, the, the account of the fall, um, and then kind of say why that's important. Now the serpent was more, more subtle than any other wild creature the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, threefold lest, read first John. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some of her to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, 
and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now, fast forwarding a little bit to, to when God comes in the picture, he asked, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God asked, you know, who told you that you were naked, right? The, Adam blames the woman, woman blames Satan. And then they were, they were exiled, right, um, from the garden. So why is this important? This is original innocence, original sin. So we're looking at the four first experiences. We have original solitude, unity, nakedness, and then now original innocence and sin. In original innocence, Adam and Eve saw their bodies for what they actually were. Namely, you are your body. You can't distinguish you, you from your body. We are this, uh, Plato had this idea of this world of forms, namely that the material world was evil and that the whole point of everything was try to escape the material world. So our soul is trying to escape our body and go back to the world of forms. That is not how Christians see the world. You are your body. Your body is good. Christopher West talks about this a lot, which I really appreciate it. Um, there's three kinds of way you can see the world, right? Uh, there's the animalistic way, there's the puritanistic way, and there's the Catholic way. Uh, the animalistic way is basically saying that you're just a body and that you're just, you're material, you have no soul. So just drink whatever you want, have sex with whoever you want, party it up. Then you have the Puritan way of thinking, namely that your body's bad, this is a platonic way. Your body's bad, your soul is good. Humble your body, ignore your body, hate your body. All that matters is your soul. Both of those extremes are wrong. We're Catholic. You are your body. You cannot distinguish yourself apart from your body. Even if you don't like the way your body looks, that doesn't matter. It's still you. You are your body. That's why the resurrection of the body in the time is, is necessary for Catholic theology. Because if you were just a soul, that you wouldn't be fully human. You'd be an angel, right? Um, so... What happens at the fall? Well, the original innocence, Adam and Eve look on each other as pure gift because they recognize that God created everything for them as a gift, that their being, being in existence is a gift from God, that they see the other body as like, wow, you're supposed to give yourself to me. I'm supposed to give myself back to you. And then that reciprocity is a gift from God. We are gifts to each other. We can only find who we are through a sincere gift of self. That's original innocence in a nutshell, right? You see everything as a gift gift as a gift and you don't feel shame you have that just total trust in the other person it's like when my toddler runs around you know butt naked around the house she doesn't feel any shame why because she totally trusts us and she knows that we love her totally and, and so there's that childlike beauty towards original innocence right not saying you run around naked that's weird don't do that um but original sin comes in the picture and just really briefly original sin I don't know. I mean, I don't know why so many people think this, but original sin isn't like this stain on your soul that all like, magically gets washed away at baptism. Uh, it's, you can maybe metaphorically say it like that, but it, the, the better way to say it is that when Adam and Eve were created, they were, they were created with grace, namely with God's presence in and amongst them, right? God walked with them in the cool of the night. What is original sin? Well, Grace is a gift. Charis in, in Greek means gift. And therefore, grace isn't necessary to keep you human, right? So you can be human without having grace. It is possible, right? If you have an intellect and will, you're human, right? Intellect, will, and, and a body, right? Um, and so Adam and Eve, after the fall, 
they lost the gift of grace, right? They lost the gift of grace. So what's your original sin? Well, you can't give what you don't have. So when Adam and Eve had kids, they couldn't pass on grace to their kids. So what's original sin? It's the fact that you're born without grace. And so when we're baptized, it's not that this water magically washes us clean. Infants don't have sin, moral sin. There's nothing that stains them. Rather, they're born as an empty cup and they're supposed to be a full cup. So what happens at baptism? The Holy Spirit fills you and floods you and fills up your cup to overflowing. And, and therefore, original sin is, is quote unquote washed away, but rather it's your, your cup is full again, the way you were meant to be from the beginning, right? The way you were meant to be from the beginning. And so this idea of original innocence, I have one more quote I want to share with you. Um, going back to original innocence, just so hopefully this makes everything understand a little bit more. We can say that inner innocence, that is the righteousness of intention, GP2 calls it, in the exchange of the gift consists in a reciprocal acceptance of the other in such a way that it corresponds to the very essence of the gift. In this way, the mutual gift creates the communion of persons. It is a question, therefore, of welcoming the other human being and of accepting him or her precisely because in the mutual relationship about which Genesis 2 speaks, the man and the woman become a gift, each one for the other, through the whole truth and evidence of their own body and its masculinity and femininity. It is a question, therefore, of such an acceptance or welcome and reciprocal nakedness that it expresses and sustains the meaning of the gift and thus deep depends, sorry, deepens its reciprocal dignity. This dignity corresponds deeply to the fact that the creator has willed and continually wills man, male and female, for his own sake, God meant best. Innocence of heart and, as a consequence, innocence of experience signifies a moral participation in the eternal and permanent act of God's will. And so what happens after the fall, original sin? Well, they notice they were naked and they cover themselves up with fig leaves. Now, one of the things that it's really, really interesting, I say fig leaves, right? Because um, that's what it says in Genesis. So if you, ever, you remember that story of, of uh, Jesus cursing the fig tree? Uh, well, a theory, which I think is pretty good theory, Jesus curses the fig tree and says, no one will ever eat your, your fruit again. And Peter and the disciples are like, what the heck? Jesus got mad all of a sudden, he cursed the fig tree. Well, what happens? Like if you, if you wake up naked somewhere, you aren't going to casually walk around and look for the best leaf to cover yourself up with. You know, rather you're going to be like, oh crap. And you're going to grab whatever's closest to you and cover yourself up. So namely, a theory could be that the, the fruit, right, was a fig, not an apple, right? It doesn't actually say apple anywhere in Genesis. Um, but they do cover themselves with fig leaves. So I think it's actually, they ate a fig, right? Um, because figs were also very common in the Middle East uh, back, in, back in the day, even now. Um, and so original sin destroys original innocence because for the first time, Eve looks at Adam and he, she sees something in his eyes. She sees lust. She sees him not seeing her, but only looking at her body. And vice versa, Adam sees the same thing. And something to note is that right after they leave the garden, right after the fall, we read this in verse, chap, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. 
Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. So who was the first person born out of lust? It was the first murderer, Cain. So four first experiences. Original solitude, unity, and nakedness. A beautiful first experience, full of joy and hope and love. And original innocence with that. But then original sin came and, and all that was destroyed. And now our, our journey through this theology of body is how do we get that back? How do we go back to viewing all as gift, including yourselves? So if you have any questions, uh, shoot them my way. Love to answer them for you. But thank you so much for joining us in Catholics with Bibles. And we'll see you next time. God bless. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Catholics with Bibles. As always, give us a like, give us a share, subscribe to our channel, give us a review. It helps people find us better. And we hope you're enjoying this mini series on the theology of the body. God bless y'all.